Welcome to Much More Much Year with Pup Duffy and Kara Lane, an Aunt Imagination production. Guys, I am here with writer, director, producer, DP, and roommate, uh, <laughs> Bill Ace. We're going to be talking about the re-release of The Wrong Door. It comes out November 28th. Blu-ray collector's edition. This is something that Wild Eye and Visual Vengeance has been doing that just tickles me to death. Taking, not necessarily obscure, but older films and re-releasing them and releasing them in a special edition Blu-ray, which film, real film lovers get excited for. It basic synopsis, there's a young man, he's got quite the crush on a fellow student. Uh, she ends up dead in his back seat <laughs> and he spends, uh-huh. spends the film kind of uh you know running from accusations and also running for his life would that be a correct description <laughs> yes yes the ted farrell he's the young college student lead and uh, he is a singing telegram messenger to uh make ends meet and uh he's called out one evening and he goes to the wrong door to deliver his big message in a court jester uniform, color, colorfully, uh, you know, festooned and bells and everything, and uh, sees a woman who looks very troubled. He's taken down the hall when somebody spots him for the real party he's supposed to be at, but he's very curious, and he goes back to that wrong door, which is ajar, and he walks in, sees the, a woman sort of mortally wounded, this fellow college mate uh, uh, at his college, and... Uh, but the killer is still in the apartment and uh, becomes aware that Ted, in his jingling bells uh, <laughs> outfit, is still in. The- so he runs out to get help. The killer runs away from the scene. But the rest of the movie then is uh, Ted being chased by this killer because he believes Ted has either seen or has something that could incriminate him. So, Absolutely. And it's it's incredibly hard to to be stealthy when you jingle. <laughs> so. Oh, yes. Yes. It was it he's, was fun. Yeah, he's kind of screwed. <laughs> let's say. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. I just want to point out for me personally, court jesters are kind of creepy. So mm. I know it's supposed to be like innocent, you know, festive or fun. I'm terrified of clowns as well. So, <laughs> oh, you know? That's interesting. The choice of costuming was like, okay, I'm creeped out already. (laughs) So, yeah, well done. Well, thanks. Well, that was, uh, we were asked a lot about why a court jester for this. Um, Well, we knew, or at least we decided that he was going to be a singing telegram messenger. And so what should he go as? And so in our minds, it was something as foolish and garish as possible. So not scary. But just like, oh my gosh, you got to wear this silly costume and go and sing to a group of people, probably drunk, uh, not fun. And everybody seems to request the court jester. Uh, so, yeah, we just wanted it to be sort of an underlying sense of like, here you are trying to keep a low profile, well, later when you're being chased. And uh, you've got this garish costume with bells. And so we just thought it'd be an undercurrent of humor. Okay. Well, and... I think as writers, we we like to write what we know or we like to uh, write what we're worried about or scared about. And I I just wanted to ask, were you a college student and what terrified you? What inspired you, your part of writing this film? Well, I was a college student for a short time. Um, but, 
it was partially based on, well, there were three of us that kind of co-created, co-wrote and co-directed this. I know that's also unusual, but at the time in the mid eighties, I was listening to a lot of old radio shows on cassette tape, whether it was Orson Welles or even the CBS radio mystery theater from the seventies. It was just, I just had a lot of fun doing that and it would just get my imagination going. So, uh, yeah, it was stories. Then we somehow wanted our main character to somehow be in the production end of that kind of a thing. So we sort of made up, I guess, sort of a, a sound production class that he was a part of. And he's got to come up with this, this, this final project for his class and write and record a, an old radio show, a mystery show or something. And so, but then he kind of becomes a part of one um as as we see of course at the end you have to decide did this really happen to him or was it just his story but uh yeah the inspiration came from enjoying that um more as a filmmaker just wanting to imitate orson well or uh well orson wells uh but uh alfred hitchcock and cohen brothers and brian de palma and and um i think our first idea was the body in the back seat you know you're driving along at night in your gesture outfit and uh all of a sudden you turn on the the dome light and you look back and there's a mortally wounded body in that your back seat you slam on the brakes it flies into the seat with you and so we kind of built the story around there i think that is a common uh worry slash fear kind of that urban legend of uh looking in your rear view and seeing Usually yeah. it's a killer in the back seat. Right. But yeah, I mean, who doesn't like get in their car at night and, yeah. and make sure there's nobody back there? I mean, it's just kind of like it's a creepy add darkness to anything and it makes it creepy. But the idea that something or someone could be in the car with you unawares, ooh, chill. Yeah. yeah. I, I still to this day think about that. It's like, what if somebody's in the back seat? You know, you just it's just a natural thing. Maybe it's from watching too many movies. I don't know, but right. Well, and all the the warnings that you would get, you know, lock your doors at the gas station, especially mm -hmm. for for young women, just to be like, you know, keep your head on a swivel. You know, always check your back seat. It's like yeah. you were in like a state of terror, and they were trying to like keep us safe, but they were terrifying us at the same time. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Yes, they do do that for sure. Well, Ted, I did like that. He could have just been like a college student. He could have just been like pre-med or, you know, something. Mm -hmm. Something but, realistic. But, right. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, you put him in, in a creative space already. Mm -hmm. So you're knowing that he's got the mind. He's got the imagination. He's a story builder already. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's perfect sense that something like this could happen to him. Or like you said, he could imagine all of it or it could be mm -hmm. all of um, his thesis or his research project we right. don't know and that's that's cool slash scary <laughs> yeah yeah um well we were creative types i guess um and uh i i, I it's been said too that other filmmakers and somebody like chris gore of film threat magazine he was a champion of our film back in the 1990 when it, we released it and he continues to be a supporter of uh independent low budget and obscure films and he has some nice things to say on the documentary we made which is included on this new blu-ray and uh i just appreciated that so much and um 
Where was I going with Chris Gore commenting on the obscurity of that? What was your question again? Sorry about that. Just the creative mind, uh, mindset oh. that you're into, yeah. What I was getting getting around to in a, in a long roundabout way was that uh, it's it's kind of about filmmaking in a sense. It's about one of the aspects of filmmaking, which is the audio production, the layering of sound or, or engineering. And uh, I guess, again, it goes back to my influence of um, the old radio shows. And even when I was a kid, the first tabletop recorder I could find, my friends and I would press record and just once there was a vampire and, you know, that yeah. kind of thing. And, and literally that made it into the script of this film. And, um, you know, to this day, of course, now that in the world of podcasting, of course, I have a podcast too, in which we do layer sound. So it's funny. It was a, it's a visual medium film, but we really incorporated sort of the audio of it and, and hope we could incorporate imagination because it is a quiet film. I mean, there's a lot you, you're watching and listening to at the same time. Well, and it's enough to like trigger, especially like for me, it's to trigger random memories from classes that I've taken. It's like, Ooh, they're talking about ambient sounds, you know? It's mm -hmm. like, yeah. It's just enough to make you go to think about it a little more. And what you said about uh, radio shows, there's, I don't know if it's a lost art or if it's just a generational thing, but there's something so freaking cool about listening to old shows. Like you said, Orson Welles. I mean, mm -hmm. who, what was the war of the world? You know, people listening to that now and we met like people freaked out. Mm -hmm. like listening. And there was no, there was no television. Your entertainment came from radio shows. Your news came from radio shows. And uh, you did the, you did the, the the Orson Welles type recording, but me and my friends, it was pretending to be like radio DJs. Mm -hmm. There's just something so, I don't know if it's the way, uh, the quality of the recordings, the sound of it. It's the same to me as like listening to vinyl. There's yeah. something. And so, I don't know. I like to have the record player with the vinyl to listen to like your Christmas music. There's something so yeah. new. I don't know. So yeah, yeah, the fact that's where your inspiration came from, that's so cool. Yeah, growing up in the 70s, as I mentioned, listening to CBS Radio Mystery Theater, it was hosted by E.G. Marshall and uh, produced by Hyman Brown. And it was kind of like the last gasp of the you know radio drama. And uh, it was well done and just, you know, just it was like adult themed, but I, as a kid, I liked it. And even those times when the radio wouldn't tune right and it's all staticky and it was hard to hear, you just leaned in closer to hear what was being said because your imagination is is doing half the work. And that's what's that's what's really cool. Right. And what was it? Um, the Christmas story, like Ralphie's listening to, I, I want to say it was like the Lone Ranger or something like that. Mm -hmm. Old uh, gang, uh, not gangster, mobster. Like, you'll oh, never yeah. catch radio. I mean, that's what a lot of kids grew up and a lot of, you know, older people remember rather than like for me, it's like if I'm thinking back, I'm remembering super old shows on TV yeah. that my that my parents watch. But for, you know, people a little older, they're like, no, I remember sitting, listening to the radio. And it's like, it's just so cool. It's, and I don't want to I don't want to think that it's lost. I want to I want to believe that there's people out there that still still love it. So, yeah. 
Well, and I, you know, I have to say that the podcast world, you know, is uh, very interesting for that. Even though we've got short attention spans, I, I think I have to credit Bill Maher for saying like the millennial generation has, you know, the attention span of, of either 10 seconds or four hours, you know, I mean, it's like you're either plugged into a show you're really fascinated by, or you're just scrolling through something on your phone. But, but in a way it has made a comeback. Um, but of course it'll never compare to 1939 world war of the worlds. And your only source of news comes from a voice, a staticky voice on a box. And you're going, Oh my God, what is happening out there? So it's, it's fun to imagine. Right. It's a crazy concept, I would say, to kids nowadays to not have exactly what you're wondering about, it, to not have it at your fingertips. You yes. know? Yeah. No, uh, you know, no YouTube, no nothing, no quickly checking what the weather is. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Having to actually search for your information in an encyclopedia. Hello. You know? Yeah, right. Right. When you can Google it in 10 <laughs> seconds, you know, or five seconds. I mean, but it is fascinating. It's and having grown up having to use the library and encyclopedias, mm -hmm. love Google. So. Yeah. Well, yes, I, I'm with you there. I some I wonder, like, how did I even survive now without Google? It's like you just, anything you need to look up and find out and find pictures of and that kind of thing. And even as a f filmmaker, I still do film and, you know, to just go and, of course, you have to get permission, but uh, you can just find any image you can think of. For a nominal fee or maybe yeah. even sometimes free. So yeah, it's a absolutely I always think what a world, not to be like uh silly about it, but like literally what a world that we inhabit. Mm -hmm. But it's mm -hmm. also it's this thin line of, oh God, what a world. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. Maybe yes. we would better kind of thought process, but yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I I don't know if this really relates, but uh, when you get overwhelmed by the thought of how much there is and how many variations of everything there is, you know, what it really comes down to is what kind of experience are you having? You know, if you see a movie that touches you and you have an experience, it's not just being manipulated uh, into feeling scared or sad or happy, but do you have a good experience, whether it's you're listening to a song, watching a movie or a podcast? So really, uh, that's become like my aha thing to cling to. Like when, oh, there's just so much. Why even try to create stuff? Why to? But that's all right. You're first. You're inspired by your own uh, ex experience and and thoughts and passions, and then you hope to share that, and somebody will have their own experience. Right, right. I mean, you watch a watch a film like like The Wrong Door, and you're like, wow, 1990 was kind of off the hook for films. I mean, this. <laughs> was weird this was great this was ooh. i need to look and see you can do that you can look at horror films of 1990 you know independent mm -hmm. horror 90 to 1995 you know whatever it is and you can find not similar necessarily but you can maybe find a film that or multiple films that gives you the same feeling the same coolness that mm -hmm. you associate because they, some things are kind of like generational and the time period that they were made. And you mentioned that you, it's you and James and Sean made mm -hmm. this all. Yeah. You said that's kind of an uncommon thing. I mean, for me, 
I think back to like Ramey and Campbell and Becker going out in the woods and making films. Mm-hmm. It was crazy that people, filmmakers, even young filmmakers, kids, teenagers, had their Super 8s. They had their kid, their parents' video camera. And they're out in the backyard. They're out in the woods. So many um, filmmakers that have films from your time were the same way. They It was with their friends. It was with like-minded creative. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think a lot of people think that you have to kind of do it by yourself or at least be the big boss. Mm-hmm. But there's that camaraderie and that, that unity of like having the same goals and same ideas for your project. I think it's really cool. Yeah. And that's p- part of getting back together with the other guys and recollecting how we did this. That was really a main ingredient was realizing how great we got along. Of course, when you're making a film, there's always stress involved and there's always times where you're short with each other. But for the most part, we were having fun. And because we shot it on Super 8 and used our own money, credit card money, that is, and <laughs> uh, paid James scratch back eventually, um, we were doing exactly what we wanted to do, having fun. And that's really, so I see this as kind of a home movie, The Wrong Door. Uh, and uh, it's just fun to go back to that time. So that's part of the experience I was talking about was the making of the film. And um, I, I feel like I want to, promote the documentary we put together which i edited together about the making of the wrong door and how that's it's probably going to be more interesting on average for people because if you're just sort of scrolling through streaming one night and you came across the wrong door you'd think what this is grainy and old and what what's this all about but i don't know next next show but um (laughs) i think the story behind it is what was fun and like you say you really have to get along with people. Yes, we're in a world now where we can create content that the whole world can see all by yourself. But if you want to tell a, a, a feature length story, tell a big story, you're going to have to really connect with people. And that, that also, that could be a challenge of the current times as well, especially if it's not professional, if nobody's getting paid and which nobody was on the wrong door People just came and just enthusiastically helped us out and stayed up through all hours of the night and the Minnesota cold. And, you know, it. Uh, so looking back on that, that was the the joy of it, that everybody was just like, yeah, go, guys. We want to help you and good luck with this. So the collaboration was really the big part that I remember the most. Absolutely. Well, that's the Collector's Edition Blu-ray uh, out November 28th. What other special goodies are going to be involved? You got the documentary behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. Yes, we've got uh, things like well, interviews with the three of us individually. Um, also, the commentary thing, where two of us will watch the film and make comments. And now that I think about it, I hope I wasn't being too negative about my own film. But that's kind of what you do <laughs> as a filmmaker. Oh, look at that! How do we make that believable? I don't know. But also, um, you even get to see a short. Like my first 16-year-old uh, film I shot on Super 8 film with my friend Sean was called Raiders of the Lost Bark, <laughs> which we found a piece of petrified wood in the woods behind my house. And uh, we just used that as the sacred object that Indiana Sean, my friend, was playing at. And it was it was shooting that minute and a half. 
and the fun of it that said, I want to be a filmmaker. So you get to see that epic Raiders of the Lost Bark, also my student project from film class. So there's just all kinds of stuff like that and trailers. Trailer for another film I did, but we couldn't fit it on this disc. Maybe that'll be another release someday. But um, yeah, all kinds of fun stuff. And you get all this. It's incredible. I was just given a copy and you get stickers and and a little door hanger as in a posters and alternative covers. It's like, wow, this is really a true collector's kind of a gem to to own. Absolutely. Well, and Indiana Sean went went on to make the music for this film. So. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yes. He was a lifelong music uh, composer, creator. And uh, so he did a great job on that. And he also, we divvied up roles, even though we all directed it. And he mostly communicated with the actors. So he kind of directed the actors. I was behind the camera most of the time. And James Gretsch was the editor. And he, I think I mentioned that he literally cut the film, the actual film that we shot and then spliced it as he edited it together. And that's the original film. And he kept it clean enough. So it doesn't look like an old home movie from your closet from 1956 or whatever. And um, then that's what was transferred to 2k. So as filmmakers to see it now in this new digital kind of in format, uh, you know, which is great because it's a dark film. We shot it on super eight. So it's extra grainy, but uh, for us, it was really fun to see it. Uh, just step up in its image quality. Right. And that's, that's thanks in part to his meticulousness back then. Yes. Yes. He did an amazing job and we storyboarded it out. You know, you get to see that. I think there are even pictures of that in the bonus material that the storyboards we did and some of the drawings were really ridiculous, but you know, that's the way it goes. So yeah, we, we tried to do it the way Hitchcock would, we had to plan things and that's just it. It's this is film. You don't have five terabytes to work with and keep the camera running or even your phone. You got to shoot intentionally what you need and then be done. And so, yeah, even this little film it took an immense amount of work and money compared to taking out your phone now and uh, shooting something real quick, which I also love to do. I like I like being I like to like I say in the documentary, I like being a bridge uh, generation wise of having the experience of shooting and editing film physically and now making a little TikTok. I just opened a TikTok account. Good Lord. You know, I don't know what's <laughs> going to happen to that, but you know, as, as a filmmaker or creative, creative person or creative, uh, what do you call it? Uh, content creator. I, you know, I kind of embrace all things to some degree. To some degree yeah. I, it, that's a whole nother, another episode about how, uh, young tiktokers today probably don't even know what film looks like so yeah, right well now that you guys are together you james and sean uh you got a new project you're gonna think about maybe or are you guys like nah <laughs> i don't know i i was thinking to myself it would really be fun if this new release made it to a pair of eyes that was in a position to say hey why don't you guys now that you're all grown up get together and redo the wrong door uh and here's some money um, yeah. If that if that happened, we'd all be like, "Oh, that sounds like a great time." But um, I don't think there's. It was great to reconnect. Uh, I mean, I've known Sean all my life, and he lives nearby. But James, I hadn't spoken with in over twenty twenty five years, uh, and it was just it was great catching up because of this project. So it's again recalling the great camaraderie we had making the film, and um, 
just it was just good people. So, yeah, it would be fun to reimagine something. Get, would love to do that, but you know, we'll we'll see see how the chips fall. I'm not a, I'm not the biggest like fan of remakes for the sake of remaking it. However, in this case, when it's kind of rejuvenated, I guess, or like redone for the times, I think that could be really really cool i mean let's say i don't know tom holland as ted i think he could be really cool because i mean we're talking 33 years i think it's okay the only thing you better never touch is highlander okay oh (laughs) (laughs) right yes i know some you just can't go there but uh i mean the wrong door is obscure enough Uh, it's a good idea for a film so and it would be the original filmmakers doing not someone who bought and said, you know what, let's make it, you know, all, oh my God, I was going to call somebody out. No, I'm going to do it. Let's make them all female Ghostbusters to make more money. Remake it because you want to like rejuvenate it, re-energize it. You want to introduce it to a, a younger culture, you know, whatever it is. I think it could be cool. Yeah, well, that, that's good. I, it would be fun. And you know, it's funny. I was just thinking yesterday for the first time, and I haven't even shared this idea with the other guys. If we redid it, what if Ted was a was a woman a young college female we'd we'd just change it up and it you know just to change it up a little bit but maybe even that would be going against the grain but uh your tom holland idea is a is a good idea and but you know what it's one of the i've learned in the 30 years since to not overthink things and if it drops (laughs) into my lap then i'll go for it uh but for now it's just good looking back well here's the thing though if you got if you did gender flip it and you had Tom Holland be the victim. I mean, then you wouldn't yeah. have to pay because he's gone in the first, you know. Yeah. <laughs> That's another but, Hitchcock idea where he, with Janet Lee and uh, Psycho. You know, you get rid of the star, which was unheard of, of course, at the time. <laughs> get rid of your star in the first 20 minutes of the film. and Like, well, we'll... oh, we only had enough to pay her for. <laughs> yeah. <You're right. laughs> that, that could be it. But yeah, it's like, uh, it wouldn't be fun to have somebody just come and say like, you know, guys, that's a great idea. How much do you want for that idea? Well, it's, yeah. a, it's like, well, I, maybe we just wouldn't sell it. And if they came up with big money, it depends on how much we're willing to sell our souls, I guess. But yeah, for something like this, it would definitely be re, the, the reunion of redoing it and, and given a platform to do it on a bigger scale. And perhaps some things could come out that we intended to with our little Super 8 film that we couldn't quite make work, so. Right. The only thing you have to be sure to not do is to not give your main character a cell phone. Don't help them. Oh, <laughs> oh I know. Well, there you go. That's that's just it. You look at this film, 1989, we shot it, and uh, there's a scene where Ted is, well, I mean, phones play a, a role in this film and an old voice machine voice recorder with cassette tapes. In fact, if anybody goes and finds this new release, you're going to see a picture of the main guy in his jester uniform, and his eyes look funny. In fact, when I first saw it, I thought, what the heck did they do with that? But what they are is they're tape spindles, the old cassette tape spindles for eyes. So an audio cassette plays an important role in um, kind of bringing the killer down um, you know, with Ted. So... There you go. It's it's fun. I think for, it's a special interest film, and those who like 
the little details and what our intention was and what things mean. And of course, the retro feel of Super 8 film, grain, audio cassettes. Uh, this should be a fun blast from the past for you. Right, right. Absolutely. And and people that are kind of burnt out on special effects and CGI, right. they're going to be like, oh, thank God, my my childhood, my teenagehood, my college years, you know, whatever it is, they're going to be like, oh, thank you. Ted, uh, Ted has to use like a regular, uh, what do you call it, landline. Oh, I'm like, what do you call it? Yeah. Landline. Right. Uh, answering machines. And he doesn't have his iPhone in the car to be like, 911. <laughs> right. No. Well, when I, I showed, uh, I did a kind of a director's cut. I forgot to mention that. I did a 2019 director's cut in which I took the footage I had and made a slightly shorter, you know, uh, cut because it was 30 years since we'd made it. And I just did this kind of for YouTube. This is before Robert, while I released and reached out to us. And uh, I showed that to our girls and it wasn't the new cut at all, but they were impressed. Um, and believe me, they would, uh, they would let me know. It's not just because I'm their dad that they were impressed. They uh, thought they said it was better than they thought. And they liked the acting in it. And uh, they, you know, so they got it. And, you know, of course, you'll start to explain. You see, back in the day, we only had landlines. You know, I mean, the, the millennials get it or they're younger. They're Gen Z, I guess. They get it. But, uh, yeah, you don't have to be an old timer to enjoy this film. Right, right. But, I mean, sometimes they get it as, as much as we get Tyrannosaurus Rex. <laughs> <laughs> right. Or maybe it's just their way of saying, like, don't explain it to me again. I get it was different in your day. Maybe that's what they're saying. <laughs> you know, this is a tangent, and then we're going to wrap up. I was so, like, tickled. I loved hearing, like, my grandmother or my great-grandmother's stories. It's like, I loved hearing those old stories. But kids nowadays, they're like, yeah, yeah, we get it. We get it. It was old. Okay. Don't you want to hear? Don't you want to hear about what happened? Because it was so cool. Yeah. So. Well, I think releasing a new copy of The Wrong Door 34 years later is a testament to, in time, people will be interested. You know, at you know when you're young, it may be off the radar, but eventually you're coming around to like, how was this done? Who? How did you guys do that with what you had? And that's that's cool. So, you know. I, I think in the end, we all become a little bit more interested in history as we, as we age ourselves. Absolutely. And I think that's, that's a, a bit of gratitude we can give to things like YouTube or TikTok, just because I don't want to sound like a grandma, but just because <laughs> some of these millennials or Gen Z's will find things and they'll be like, Oh my God, check it out. And mm -hmm. it's like, it's something old or, you know, it's like an older film. And we're going, yay, you discovered it. So, <laughs> so thank yeah. you. to. Yeah. But yeah, it comes out November 28th, this massive collector's edition, it sounds like, with all these goodies. Where can people mm -hmm. get You know, it's so brand new. I haven't even been updated as to like where you can. And I, so I'm sorry, I don't have that info. I was lucky enough to get a few copies <laughs> sent to me by, you know, Wild Eye Releasing and... um so I'm just looking at it going, wow, wow. But I, I, I don't know where, don't know where you can find it, but I'm, I'm sure these, we've been in good hands. They've done an outstanding job of making this uh, like way better than a film <laughs> that it is in my opinion, but um, it's so exciting. And uh, I think it'll be easy to find 
you know, if they have any say in it. So wildireleasing.com has their catalog and their distribution. You should be able to order it or pre-order it. Yeah. Wildireleasing.com. You can get it. But that you can also follow Wild Eye on social media. How about you? Can people follow you, Bill? Uh well, they can. But yeah, people can find me. I I have a like you can see some of my serious uh, video work. I've done a lot of documentary work with Native Americans on on Bill Weiss, my YouTube channel for Bill Weiss. Um, and uh, one of I did a feature film called Little Crow in the Dakota War about a a war. Uh, with the Dakota people in here in Minnesota. And uh, it resulted in like uh, 30, 32 uh, peop- uh, warriors being hung. So yeah, that's the serious stuff. My goofy stuff is on something called Cabin Country Podcast, where I just reminisce about growing up, having a cabin and doing fishing, boating and hunting and stuff like that and we also do sketch comedy stuff so i still get to incorporate those that love of radio shows um by mixing together a multi-layered kind of entertainment sketch style uh comedy in my podcast so yeah well thanks for letting me share that and uh that's other than that i'm pretty horrible at self-promotion (laughs) <laughs> yes, <Yeah>, same. <laughs> Somebody said, Bill, Bill, you got to update your IMDB page. Uh, your bio is a little thin. So I guess I'll have to do that. <laughs> Listen, if you want to tell me my IMDB is thin, I say at least something of mine is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cabin Country Podcast, where you find your favorite podcast. Bill Weiss on YouTube. Get the DVD from Wild, Wild Eye Releasing. I'm excited to go over and check out your podcast because it sounds hilarious. Well, Bill, thank you so much for joining me. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you so much. Uh, What a pleasure. I'm so grateful that you wanted me to have you on your, on your show. Thank you so much, Bill. All right. Thanks. All right. Take care. This has been an Odd Imagination production. Here at Odd Imagination, you'll find book, film, television, and product reviews, as well as roundtable discussions, current events, and hot topics. We are advocates for equality and the freedom to be who you are, no matter what. Aut Imagination gets its name from autism and imagination, two things that are very important to us. If you would like more information on Aut Imagination and the podcasts that we host on our website, you can visit autimagination.org. A-U-T-I-M-A-G-I-N-A-T-I-O-N dot org. And pulling me, she knows all about the drug. I plagiarize all my apologies, and they still want enough. I know, I know, I know that I should let her go, but I don't, I don't, I don't seem to be in control.